Welcome to the Underhand Free Throw. It's a basketball podcast with Ian and Simon. I'm Ian. And I'm Simon. And today we are going to be talking about the Eastern Conference. We've been deep diving on the West for what feels like a year. So finally, we're going to get to talk about some Eastern Conference teams. And we're going to switch it up and do it a little bit differently. We're going to we're going to also give you our Eastern Conference predictions. We're going to start from the bottom and go all the way to who we think will be the number one seed in the East this year. Yeah, and first we're just going to get into a couple of teams that we find confusing or, or difficult to place in the standings for for whatever reason. Um, And then after that, we will get into our predictions themselves. Simon, let me ask you, what is, give me your most difficult or top three most difficult teams to predict in the Eastern Conference. The one that I've had the most trouble with trying to determine, you know, are are they going to be the three seed? Are they going to be the six seed? Are they going to be in the play-in? Has to be the Cleveland Cavaliers, um, just with how good they were last year in combination with how young this team is and how young teams tend to improve sometimes very drastically. And then of course the addition to Donovan Mitchell, which solves what was really their biggest weakness last year. in in just terms of having one more um, offensive creator at the end of games that they can go to and not have to be completely reliant on Darius Garland. So this is a team that I, um, I mean, I'm high on, it's really hard to know how high to be on, the Cavaliers, like, are they are they in that um, upper echelon of the East yet, or are they still kind of one of the middle of the pack teams? Yeah, last year they won 44 games, which is like, you know, solid. Did not make the play-in tournament. Came close. Really, basically that team kind of came out last year and took the NBA by storm a little bit early on. They were, they were the talk of the town when they were like rocking this jumbo, jumbo lineup where they had basically three guys, 6'11 or taller, playing the three forward positions or the three front court positions and just kind of had this monster defense that no one could beat. I feel early in, you know, at one point they were like 19 and 12 and they were looking to claim home court advantage in the Eastern Conference playoffs in a way nobody saw coming that early. And then the injuries just started to pile up. Like they lost Colin Sexton like mm-hmm. six games into the season. People were sort of okay with that because it was like, you know, addition by subtraction maybe and that they weren't really sure how he was going to fit with their defensive identity. And Ricky Rubio was killing it. So it kind of opened up the void for him to do that. And then Ricky Rubio got injured. And by the end of the season, it was like Jared Allen went down for this big chunk and they lost a ton of game. Even Mobley like missed a little bit of time. It it wasn't their season, but they did enough early on, I think, to get people excited. I was excited about them this season, even before the Donovan Mitchell trade. Like I thought they were going to be sneakily fighting for home court advantage. And then they went out and signed a fairly consensus top. 20 player in the NBA to add to their young core and he's young too. So yeah. What, what about them to you makes them so difficult to predict? Well, one thing that was alarming was Donovan Mitchell is, is bringing brought in really to solve the issue of Darius Garland can't create everything at the end of games when they're, when the offense um, slows down and the defense of the opposing team tightens up. And so he needs a little bit of help on that end. They tried to trade for Karis LeVert to address that a little bit last offseason at the trade deadline. Yeah. And it was it was an experiment that had mixed results. We'll just put it that way. Donovan Mitchell is obviously a better offensive creator than Karis LeVert, but he had his own issues with offensive creation late in games last year. Um, definitely the worst season of his career in terms of uh, field goal percentage and scoring efficiency in clutch situations. So was that a function of him being in Utah on a team that had declining talent and he had 
possibly declining interest in being there. Who knows? But, you know, he's obviously surrounded with more talent in Cleveland. And is that going to be the boost he needs to get it back on track to being a being a closer, being a reliable, you know, just offensive machine that is going to really help Darius Garland and, and just the Cavs in general be more effective offensively. Even with Donovan Mitchell, sort of like you said, like you mentioned, he didn't have the most effective, efficient season shooting the ball. But I thought we saw in his game this really kind of maxed out offensive package in terms of his ability to both threaten with a pull-up three and attack the mm-hmm. crowded paint and 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 kick out to three-point shooters. Those were his three main strengths. When I say maxed out, I don't mean he can't improve on any of those things, but he got those all to a level where he was just a very, very dangerous offensive player and the kind of offensive player that you can build an entire offense around, even if he still has some big uh, weaknesses in his game. Once he gets into the paint, he was very good last year in Utah's system at kicking out to... Uh, three-point shooters however he was famously miserable with his interior passing in terms of like specifically getting the ball to rudy gobert Gobert. there was some pretty like alarming kind of sensationalized stats that got posted of like how few times he even passed the ball to rudy gobert in a game or over a season um and sometimes those stats look worse than they actually are if you like watch every game and understand their offense you know why those passes aren't aren't going in but after I heard about that, it changed how I was watching Utah games. And I would notice like the way that he makes certain reads, he gets into the paint really easy and he kicks out very easily. He really struggles to see like I, I noticed him missing Gobert's role a lot and then like kicking to the corner. So is that the kind of thing where Donovan Mitchell has room to improve? Like because interior passing is a little bit harder. You're you're it's it's tighter angles. You don't always have like the same vision. There's extra bodies being uh or now you have to be a little bit more proactive where three point uh, kicking up to three point shooters can often be a little bit more reactive. You can kind of get into the paint, see both sides of the floor. You can even sometimes like jump and then still look. There's a lot of time to make that pass if the defense is, is coming a long way to meet you where the interior passes is very brief windows. So I think now that he's playing with two interior players all the time, instead of with Rudy Gobert, where it was just one guy on the inside all the time, it'll be interesting to watch Donovan Mitchell navigate tighter spaces he also will have less creation responsibilities though playing next to Darius Garland yeah that's true I mean the Mike Conley experiment worked to some extent um with Mike Conley being a well I think I feel like the perimeter creation duties were pretty well distributed between the two of them in Utah they have a similar situation here in Cleveland with Darius Garland I think that the idea is to have him be the lead guard you know he's the future of the team and Donovan Mitchell although I'm sure he'll have plenty of playmaking responsibilities as well as in more of an off guard position um, where he can utilize his his catch and dribble drive game very effectively with how athletic he is the only question I have with that is who's starting at the small forward in Cleveland and are they going to have the spacing to really open things up for Donovan Mitchell effectively especially if if they don't if Isaac Okoro is playing a heavy load of minutes three this year um you know it's two non-shooters on the floor so that could make things a little bit cramped they were they were starting a big man on the wing all of last season like when it wasn't Lowry Markkinen yeah. it was like they'd bring Dean Wade in. and he I've seen the footage on him like he looks pretty good he's not like an elite defender or anything like that and he definitely does not change he changes directions like a big man but he's one of those smart proactive, hardworking guys that kind of maybe doesn't have the exact ideal mobility to play the small forward position, but he's going to kind of make up with that with smarts and efforts. So I know a lot of Cavs fans who that's who they're that's who they're rooting for to to win the position. Yeah. O- Okoro is the guy that casual fans know better. Or like if you're not following the Cavs a lot, Isaac Okoro is a recent high draft pick. He's a defensive yeah. wing. 
people like the idea of it and they started slotting him in there where I think inside the Cavs organization, like Isaac Okoro was not by any means the default guard there. Actually, you know, I think uh, they had Levert starting a quite quite a bit in preseason. I hope I'm not wrong about that. But um... in Cleveland, I would say out of any team in the NBA is the one team that can probably afford to not have the most uh, stout defensive backcourt just with how good Jared Allen and Mobley are. I think Mobley is basically up. their small forward in terms of like the things that you that they'll be wanting a small forward to do in terms of like defending wings, bothering the perimeter and stuff like that. He's going to be doing a lot of those things anyway. So I think with his ability to defend the interior and the perimeter and with Jared Allen's ability to anchor the back line when Mobley is out on the perimeter as well as like you know he's a pretty mobile guy himself he's not you don't really want him like switching on a point guards but he's not he's not chopped liver in those matchups and he's a pretty he's a very graceful like recoverer when he does go out in the perimeter and getting back into the paint so like I think if you have those two guys the kind of wing you need it's like it's not as big a deal like I think they're going to cover a lot of the bases that a small like people think of like oh I want like a six nine guy who can guard every position and fill in all the gaps on my team Cleveland has less gaps to fill in so I think that fifth starter should be thought of more as like a fifth starter to fill in wherever they're lacking that probably that could be shooting depending on how Mobley's improved over the off season, because that's the other thing. If Mobley, uh, if Mobley comes out and it's just like shooting threes, or even just sort of like a, a little bit better percentages on his on his long twos and in the mid range, that kind of changes their offensive equation quite a bit. Because Mobley's just that versatile, and if he can shoot a little bit, like I don't really care who the three is at that point. Like, yeah, you need a fifth player out there, someone who helps your best players do what they do best. But I don't think it necessarily like they need to go out and find a prototypical three and D wing that obviously that would be ideal, but is it necessary for their success on either ends? Like I think they're going to be really good on offense and really good on defense, regardless of who that starting three is. Yeah. Because like you said, I think it is probably a good way to move forward. Just have the three be whoever, you know, shore up whatever weakness is happening. And then you can always do the reverse, you know, like if, if defense is the issue, I don't foresee it being a massive issue for the Cavs, but if it is, you can slide a Coro into the starting lineup, you know, hopefully he does enough backdoor cuts to make it not too much of a, a stagnant mess offensively when he's on the floor. Yeah. Um, but if defense isn't the issue, a Coro can come off the bench and, and really shore up the perimeter defense when the second unit is in the game. So, and then they have Chetty Osman as an option. They have Levert as an option. Um, Levert probably feels a little bit redundant because he's more of a creator with the ball in his hands. And you already have two guys in the starting lineup who can do that before the Donovan Mitchell trade. Having Levert in the starting lineup made a little bit more sense, but I don't see him as like this awesome catch and shoot guy. So I think Dean Dean Wade is is probably your best option if you're looking for a guy who provides size, can rebound a little bit, um, is not going to be terrible defensively just because of his his smarts and his length, and is a decent spot up shooter. I think what I find most interesting about them is how good is their offense going to be. I think it will be pretty good. So specifically, like what is that? offense going to look like like you're putting together a lot of interesting parts last year it was all about the Darius Garland uh, Jared Allen pick and roll Jared Allen people think of him as a, a rim diving big which he definitely is but when you actually watch what being a rim diving big means for Jared Allen like it doesn't quite do him credit he's a very clever no, cutter doesn't. he's yeah. not just I set the screen, I roll hard to the rim. And there's a, that's already a very useful offensive role. Like we've seen Clint Capella and DeAndre Jordan in the past boost offenses tremendously with their rim gravity just by essentially sucking <laughs> in players into the paint. Yeah, um, JaVale McGee. 
There's yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, Bismack Biombo. But, you know, like we've seen players do that in a sort of elevated way. Jared Allen, I, I want to separate from that pack a little bit because he's not just setting that screen and diving to the rim. He's so clever and has such good feet that he's often kind of like lurking around the dunker spot, waiting for the defense to lose track of him or forget about him, and then sliding mm -hmm. into space and presenting the easiest passing target. Like Darius Garland is a very good passer. I'm kind of hoping with a scoring burden taken off of him a little bit with Donovan Mitchell, we're really going to get to see that passing game a little bit more as he sort of sets the table between those interior players uh, and Donovan Mitchell's perimeter oriented game jared allen made him an even better passer by just like some of those passes were so easy all of a sudden there's a seven footer yeah. standing really close to the rim and he's wide open and no one's looking at him and it's just a quick handoff or a, and darius garland their, their chemistry was a beautiful thing so is that still going to be the emphasis of their attack does donovan mitchell help that with the spacing he provides or like is he going to eat up possessions and detract from that it seems like it could fit together beautifully but you never know how pieces will fit together and sometimes there's a less predictability so these pieces fitting together on the court offensively and jared allen and evan mobley being able to anchor the defense on their own mm -hmm. sort of with a bunch of smaller players in front of them is what's going to determine how how good this team is like it's really easy to see how good they could be it's easy to sort of easy to imagine how it wouldn't fit together as cleanly as my imagination is making it fit together. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely issues, but I think it's too easy to really just pick apart teams when they have a noticeable flaw. And, you yeah. know, for the Cavs, there's a couple is like the spacing isn't as good as it could be. I mean, we just had a team win the title last year in the Warriors that didn't have perfect floor spacing at all times. So I it's certainly possible to work around. And yeah. then I think Boston too. Boston sometimes really struggles. And Boston with. as well. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the three position does seem like a bit of a hole. This could be a trade team. Um, they have the Chetty Osman contract at about 10 million a year. That is a really nice trade piece for, you know, a uh, someone making a, a more reasonable contract, probably a, a bench player, not a true blue starter, especially because they don't have any picks left to trade after the Donovan Mitchell deal that they, they uh, unloaded three firsts and two swaps for. So yeah. They're a little bit light on picks. They don't have a ton of flexibility with trades, but I, I do see them getting involved for a trade for a guy like Jay Crowder if they can. Yeah, I mean, if, if it's not Crowder who is available, it, it's trading for a, a starting level wing that's going to move the needle is is easier said than done, especially when you just gave up all of your draft capital. They also gave up a first round pick for Karis LeVert last year. So it's like the cupboards are not full of, of juicy little things to make that trade happen easier. So could be like trade team because you see the need, see the assets to make it happen. I'm a little bit less certain about that, but it's also going to be... I think it's a yeah. very exciting season for like, you know, more importantly than the small forward position or what I said earlier about why they don't need a small forward as much as most teams do is like Evan Mobley's going into his second year. He had an awesome rookie season. He looked like just one of the best defensive front court players in the NBA already in terms of his yeah. versatility. He reminded me a little bit better. of, he reminded me a little bit of Kevin Garnett, like, like baby Kevin Garnett, second year Kevin Garnett to be specific. And if you match up their stats from when they're around the same age, because Kevin Garnett came out of high school and Mobley spent a year at USC. Um, so if you look at Evan Mobley's rookie stats and Kevin Garnett's second year stats, they're a bit eerie. He's got that um, lanky guy fadeaway that I swear, like just it, it gives me goosebumps how similar it is. He's not quite as twitchy as Garnett was, but he's a little bit more like sort of like smooth and graceful. I'm not saying Evan Mobley's going to be Kevin. 
Kevin Garnett, but I'm watching his second year to see if, if that arc is a possibility. If he turns into Kevin Garnett, uh, all these little nitpicking things we're talking about with Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell are going to matter a whole lot less because that's just like they've got this like possible monster growing up on the, the youngest player on their roster. Yeah, and that's why I'm really a huge fan of trading for Donovan Mitchell because I mean, ultimately this team... They have the two backcourt stars and Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell. I think both those guys are going to be, I don't know, the the East is really talented right now, but at least borderline all-star candidates for years to come. And neither of those guys are even the best player on the team, you know, projecting down the line. uh, It's most likely going to be Evan Mobley, barring some sort of horrific injury. Having your second and third best players be, I don't want to sell Jared Allen short, you know, having two of your top four players be Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell, I would say you're you're really in good shape there. One last thing I want to say about the Cleveland Cavaliers is health permitting. They're bringing Ricky Rubio and Kevin Love off the bench. And those are two just like, very, very smart gap fillers. Rubio as a as a sort of offensive orchestrator and a defensive player. Like if if he's in their rotation, he's he's gonna like you know be helping them guard wings in uh in in ways that they're currently not able to. And Kevin Love is such a wheel greaser with his shooting and passing and his ability to like yeah. duck in for post ups and operate at the high post. We're excited about those four stars, but there are other pieces on this roster um that are really exciting. I don't want to hype the Cavs too much. Or yeah, no, I do want to hype the Cavs too much. Why not? What do I have to do? Is? <laughs> um, yeah. If the Cavaliers had the best record in the Eastern Conference, I would not be shook by that. I don't, that's not, yeah. we'll talk later about where I actually have them projected. But like, if they were, if there's a team that there's one, there's a couple teams in this league this year that could be very like just sneaky, take the league by storm. I think the Cavs are the most kind of obvious team that might be able to do that in a very crowded Eastern Conference. Yeah, there's so many good teams in this conference. Yeah. So let's talk about another one of them. Um, what is another team that you found really confusing and just just hard to really get a beat on this uh going into this season? Yeah, let's head up, let's head up north to the Toronto Raptors. Another team, like you know, they sort of they were at one point kind of competing with Cleveland for the play-in spot last year, and where Cleveland kind of faded off at the end, the Raptors came on super strong. Like they finally kind of got their whole team together for the end of it, and went. I feel like they lost like they went they went like eighteen and four or something like that to finish the season, and had every yeah. clever analyst in the NBA talking about how they were going to upset Philly. And then they came out and got blown out by Philly in the first game of that series. And Fred Van Vliet and Scotty Barnes got hurt and they went down 3-0 and it just sort of looked like a joke or why did we, why did we get so overexcited about the Raptors? And then the Raptors came back and won two games and, and it yeah, completely turned around and everyone was essentially like, they're, they're going to be the first team ever to come back from a, from a 3-0 hole. It's going to be the humility humiliation of doc the final humiliation of doc rivers the final humiliation of james harden if you if, you, if you're an Embiid hater you're excited about that moment and then philly just won another game in fairly convincing fashion and that ended that but it was an emotional roller coaster ride i think that the raptors provided so yeah why this team this team won 48 games last year put them in the five seed they actually i mean they only came they're only a couple games behind the rest there are three games back of being the two seed by the end that year despite not really feeling like like a serious competitive they seemed like a play and lock for most of the season and all of a sudden they were they charged up to like almost reaching that upper echelon of the east so why be excited about them this year or why are they a team that's that's harder to predict it was a weird one last year because the team really took off as fred van vliet faded fred van vliet had the injury 
was it right before the all-star game or right after it i, yeah. I just know he right was after. he was oh, i mean really he was injured struggling. right after i'm not sure i think he did get hurt before the all-star break but no one really started okay. noticing that until after the all-star break yeah fred van vliet really struggled at the end of the year defensively offensively his his shot fell off and the raptors played significantly better at the end of the year because the ball was in scotty barnes hands and he was creating a lot of stuff for them kind of as a as a point forward along with pascal siakam doing a lot of that as well just having your the guys you're starting four and five create your offense for you it was it's truly a i think this is the reason why you know the nba nerds love this team so much is just they're so weird have your have your bigs be your your offensive creators and they don't have a whole lot of shooting and everyone on the floor is six foot eight and it, it's just kind of a wild team but i think that what we saw out of Scotty Barnes, especially at the end of last year, was incredibly promising for his future development. I think a lot of people thought he was going to be awesome as like a, a switchable defender, just a guy who could kind of get it into the paint and get to the rim, finish because of just like how lengthy and athletic he is. But no one saw that his game would become so well-rounded offensively so soon. You know, the shots coming along, uh, the three-point shot isn't quite there, but he has a nice mid-range game. And the playmaking is is awesome. So I think he really is the team's future. Um, I think Fred Van Vliet is still a great piece, but as we saw last year, especially during the latter half of the year, I don't I don't know if the Raptors want to rely on Fred Van Vliet as their point guard necessarily. I can tell you might not be agreeing with me here, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I I really like their just their assortment of of players who can make things happen, um, make things happen with the ball who aren't Fred Van Vliet. Yeah, I, I don't entirely disagree with you. Once Fred Van Vliet was hurt, he was the the longer the season went on, and then into the playoffs, he was sort of hurting them when he was out there. He was a very, very good player in the first half of the season before that injury. Just no disagreement there. Canning pull like deep pull up threes, really gutsy shots, you know, just sort of like those like just kind of walking the ball up the floor. And it's like, I'm just going to pull up right now. And also even, even after he was hurt, the way that he was so willing to play off the ball, to keep the ball in the hands of Siakam and Scotty Barnes and how he'd come off screens was a very important part of their offense. Defensively in the first half of the season, he's also, I know all these guys are six foot eight and he's like maybe six feet tall, but he was, a, he's a monster defender in the, on the nail. He, he blows up pick and rolls all the time. Like he's a, he's got great hands. He's super tough. He's super strong. He can guard up a little bit just with his strength. So he kind of was the whole Raptors team in the in the first half of the season. The stuff that he does well is stuff that they're lacking. Like, you know, he's their, he's by far their best shooter. He's probably still their best passer, though. You know, I think that Scotty Barnes and Siakam's progress in that area is like, you know, hopefully they're giving, uh, hopefully they're pushing him for being the primary playmaker on the Raptors. I think Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, uh, the Raptors are this like nerdy fantasy of playing five, six foot eight guys who are interchangeable and can uh, switch everything. And it doesn't really matter who the ball handler is like they're they're they're, they're flirting with this basketball nerd Nirvana. But their half court offense is pretty janky at best. What I'm getting from you is like Fred Van Vliet is the training wheels that the Raptors like need to get over <laughs> so they can. Yeah, they know. still they still absolutely need him for now. I mean, I think you made a great point with the shooting and the Raptors do in some ways get around the what initially seems like a lack of shooting. I mean, they have Fred Van Vliet, they have Gary Trent Jr., they have OG Ananobi, who's a good spot up three point shooter. 
I think Scotty Barnes' three-point shot is going to improve. Pascal Siakam, his consistency isn't quite there, but like he's a he's a capable three-point shooter. So they they have a collection of guys who can shoot. Although I I will say I'm a bit worried about the shooting ability in terms of their bench. But at least they're starters. They can make it happen. They can make it work. Their half-court offense will survive, and they can be so great in transition and at being switchable and versatile defensively. I, I think this will be a good team. So Fred VanVleet is still a huge part of that. I just I worry about his health. I worry about Ananobi's health, especially a guy who's really struggled to get through 60 games. Yeah, can we just get can we, can we get one healthy Ananobi season? Like I feel like we everyone gets excited about him before every year. I think this is the first year where, where no one's really talking about him because the yeah. two years before that, I was like, all right, Ananobi time. I think he, he, I remember him getting lots of, again, lots of like smart basketball minds. He was their pick for most improved player. Like he was a popular name being thrown around at the beginning of the season. And then it just seems like we come to the halfway point of every season and he's, he's missed some games and just isn't quite what everyone wants him to be offensively or defensively. I will say like yeah. almost every time that Ananobi has been in the playoffs, he, he almost always comes through and is either in his in his early years it was like he was the guy guarding LeBron back in 2018 and doing a great job like LeBron hit that absolutely silly game winner out of it where it didn't even look like LeBron was trying to hit it he just sort of like ran out of bounds and just threw it up in the air it was like this fadeaway floater off his like right foot right hand perfectly contested by Ananobi who drove him straight to the baseline and LeBron just sort of what it was like LeBron was so powerful back then he could just sort of not care and that would make him even more powerful like he was just so relaxed in those moments he yeah. wasn't even playing seriously he just was throwing the ball up there and it would just drop through the hoop <laughs> but like and people make fun of Ananobi for that shot I've heard like Raptors like his teammates will like will bring it up um, but it's like he played perfect defense like you drive your guy to the baseline that's it anyway so he was great in that playoff series he had a huge game winner for them against boston to keep that in that series uh um, the one where jalen brown fell asleep on the back door yeah and well, it wasn't a back door because he came he came from the baseline out to the three-point line yeah yeah yeah, it was a it was a wild shot, but and then he was he was one of their more consistent offensive players against Philadelphia as the as the rest of the roster was sort of like up and down. Um Ananobi did some good things. He's got some limitations as a playmaker. Um he's got some limitations as like a contact drawer. Uh, I've noticed this a lot from him like it's kind of the missing piece of his game in that um he seems despite being this powerful strong athlete who is pretty aggressive after the bump you know he'll initiate contact but it'll throw him off balance a little bit like he doesn't have elite balance in those scenarios and that's i think mm -hmm. what's holding him back from just being this really aggressive power wing and which is why he's seemed to have geared his game more towards perimeter shooting he was taking some crazy shots last year in toronto like he was getting isos on the perimeter he was taking step back threes in those situations like he's definitely someone who's grown his game but again yeah let's just get a season where he plays 70 games as, as a two-way player and makes an all-defense team and again that's that's one of the many swing pieces on toronto that could that would be the difference from them being a 50 plus win team with home court advantage or them fighting to stay out of the play in and there's yeah, there's, think, there's eight really good teams in the in the west so if you don't if you don't get your shit together toronto it's it's the play in for you i mean even if you're good in the East this year, you're right. There's so much competition that winning 50 games is not enough to guarantee 
home court advantage in the first round of the playoffs this year. Yeah, I think I'm trying to look at, I think 538 was sort of into the Raptors. They recently released their season predictions. They they had them, I think, fourth in the, in the East, I want to say, fourth or fifth, which is, I think, probably where a lot of people tend to have them. But it feels more yeah. like they're being put in there because people don't know if the Raptors are going to pop off or fall apart. So it's like a nice compromise. And it sounds like that's sort of where we're both at with them. Where I can't see them winning the East. I just don't think they have that offensive firepower. I, I think like even a good offensive performance by the Raptors this season there's so many good offensive teams that like i don't see them getting out of the middle 10 in terms of offenses they're gonna be somewhere between the 11th and 20th ranked offense and i think that's the range i can't picture them being a top 10 offense i don't think they'll be a, a bottom 10 offense either but so because of that we're going to need to see the raptors as like a, a definite top 10 and hopefully a top five defense if we're going to see yeah. them you know fight to get into that top four seeds so the one other team that I think you and me have both really struggled to know what to do with in the Eastern Conference, along with the Raptors and the Cavaliers, has to be the Atlanta Hawks. Um, it's another one of these teams that has a really high ceiling. I won't say their floor is the basement, but as we saw last year with how poor their defense was most of the year, their floor is certainly low, even given how effective they are at, at scoring the ball. And, you know, the Hawks have, unlike the Raptors, have a very effective half-court offense, but they just really struggled to stop other teams last year. And and so they finished the year out um, number eight in the standings. Yeah. And they, they finished the year as the second ranked offense of the NBA and the 26th ranked defense. So unlike the Raptors who are, you know, kind of average to above average on both sides of the ball, this is a, this is a much more extreme team, the Atlanta Hawks. In terms of additions they've made, obviously they pulled off a significant trade of their own, bringing in Deontay Murray, formerly of the San Antonio yeah. Spurs. I know you're a huge Deontay Murray fan. How do you see him changing the fortunes of the Hawks? Just quick, quick note, because we mentioned 538's forecast. They are really high on the Hawks. They have them finishing yeah. second in the East. So just um, some people have the Hawks in like borderline the playoffs. And but there's like some data that thinks the Hawks are going to soar this year. The reason why we're talking about the Hawks is both of us struggle to know exactly what to do with them. But I, I certainly could see great things for the Hawks. I'm tempering my expectations a little bit just because I want to see it happen first before going too all in. And just because I think there's some other teams that are more established and can maybe be trusted a little bit more in the regular season. Yeah. I know coaching is is one question that I have with the Hawks. But one thing I will say is their their defense was obviously their biggest failing last year. And I think a lot of that got dressed. Obviously, adding DeJounte Murray is huge as having a really great point of attack defender. He's a guard technically, but he is six foot five and has kind of a freaky wingspan yeah. and is also just like a crazy, like fluid athlete who can uh, stay in front of players very easily and can get those longs and arms up there and contest shots even over you know, with much bigger guys that he's defending. So I think that's going to be huge for them because they really just didn't have an elite defensive guard last year. No, they're making out. DeAndre Hunter whenever he was healthy guard, point yeah. guards and stuff like that. And that just felt like, oh, you have one position of defense. They had like two positions of defensive strength. It was like center and small forward. But when they would take their small forward and make him chase around point guards, it was they just sort of opened up a different hole, which where they're just like, yeah, and then you're, then the you're, then you're putting Bogdan Bogdanovich trying to guard larger wings and, you you know, things can kind of cascade from there. And then obviously you're hiding Trey on the other team's weakest offensive player. And I don't think that's going to change. But outside of adding DeJounte Murray, I see two other areas of defensive improvement. And those are um, a healthier DeAndre Hunter. He missed roughly half the year last year. And then 
more minutes from uh, Anekia Kangwu, I think is going to really help seal up the interior. Um, I don't know how much Okongwu and uh, Clint Capella are going to share the floor together as two non-shooting bigs, but Okongwu certainly has the foot speed and athleticism to stay in front of bigger fours. So I don't see it as being a bad defensive fit, but it's just, it's going to be a shame if Capella is still playing in the high twenties minutes per night and Okongwu doesn't get a chance to shine. Cause I think his defensive upside is huge. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing because like Capella's not old yet. Like he's older than no. the other Hawks. We've been projecting the Hawks' future for so long that it's like, we know Clint Capella is not going to be good or on the team when Trey Young is, is 26 or something like that. Clint Capella is still very good. He's um, more offensively capable than Oyeka is at this point in terms of like being a lob threat for Trey Young, yeah. you definitely want if you've got a passer like Trey Young, you have to have a lob threat on the floor. You just otherwise you're just wasting this whole whole specific realm of offense of like easy um easy passes for efficient buckets and so Clint is really still important there. Um but everyone's everyone's ready for the Onyeka Okongwu era. It, it would be nice if they could play together a little bit, even if they had, even if there was just like a, a five minute a night lineup that was like defensively geared, but we didn't really see that at all from them last year. So I see no reason to predict that this year, but looking at their overall rotation, there's some defensive upside from last year. Like, you know, cause I think all they're really hoping is to move from like the 26th defense into being like 15th or something. That's if you're, yeah. if you're like the number one offense in the NBA and an average defense, that's a title contender. So I think the Hawks would be thrilled with that. They will no longer be playing Daniel Gallinari big minutes at the four and the five. And that is a, that's a total offensive that's move <laughs> with like obvious defensive yeah. ramifications. So, I mean, Onyeka has got minutes to pick up there. You're swapping and essentially like a, a monster defensive piece for a, um, for an offensive boosting piece. Deontay Murray, who we've discussed is going to be taking specifically um, minutes that were occupied last year by Kevin Herter. So that's mm-hmm. a big defensive upgrade. Bogdan. Bogdanovich. And, and I, I imagine that Deontay Murray will play the backup point a decent amount yeah as providing they stagger him and trey young's minutes which they definitely should because Dejounte murray is most valuable with the ball in his hands and also the guy who he's replacing in that part of his rotation minutes is lou williams i thought i was a little bit like frustrated watching the hawks last year i rooted for them pretty hard the year before when they ended up going to the eastern conference finals i was super high on mm-hmm. them so to see them go into this year and i've seen this happen so many times in the nba a team is like they're super successful they catch lightning in a bottle off of their offense and then the next year but their defense is like eh. and the next year they double down and just go like okay let's just try to get even better on offense and just throw it yeah. all away on defense like we saw the lakers do that after their title season another big team yeah for me was the um the 2003 Mavericks with Steve Nash and Dirk Nowitzki went to the Western Mm -hmm. Conference Finals were a dominant offensive team that had a lot of uh, defensive role players on it and that was the year they got rid of all their defensive role players to bring in Antoine Walker and Anton Jameson and their offense did get even more ridiculous but their defense went from average to last in the league and they just weren't a serious contender anymore it's like it's such a classic mistake in roster building it's like yes you're an offensive team it's about getting your defense as sort of like close to average or, or making it as good as you can. And so I do think in terms of personnel, 
the Hawks have boosted their defense a little bit because you can't just go out there like, yeah, we're going to play Trey Young and Lou Williams in crunch time with Bogdan Bogdanovich at the four. And heck, let's throw Danilo Gallinari out there at the five. It's just like we need to make yeah. shots it's like you're giving up. <laughs> you're giving up a bucket guaranteed every single time with like with lineups like that. And I remember I was found myself pretty frustrated with Nate McMillan in that regard that he just made these all big time offense for defense sacrifices all the time that were not serving them well. So I think they're they're not going to be a great defensive team, but I feel like they've boosted their defense. They've tilted their roster in the right direction, I think. Without really yeah. a big defensive sacrifice, it's not like, or sorry, offensive sacrifice. It's like like Deontay Murray is an upgrade over over Kevin Herter, maybe not in in terms of like a, a, as a shooter, but overall, like, you know, you've upped your offensive talent. And Gallinari, I think it was like, a, you know, probably, I mean, he got injured this year anyways, but like he was like, kind of training wheels a little bit for them as well offensively like as long as trey young is on that team they're going to be a, a top five offense so figure out your defense hawks we haven't even mentioned john collins he is the forgotten hawk well yeah i mean they've been trying to trade him for at least a year so i think he's almost forgotten to the team too yeah the yeah. only question i have about the hawks is just who's playing the backup what is their depth like at forward deandre hunter has already shown injury concerns he's really struggled to stay healthy in his career yeah uh, i mean who who do they have after him and john collins i mean they drafted aj griffin in the draft this year it would be nice to see anything resembling competent nba play out of jalen johnson and uh, i guess they have justin holiday um who was around they have a couple holidays on the roster with him and his and his uh younger brother Aaron so maybe he'll he'll be the missing guy at the back one of the backup forward spots you know he's 32 now mm-hmm. yeah he took a long time to get to the NBA out of college he spent several years playing overseas um I watched him quite a bit that it was like the peak of my college basketball fandom when he was at Washington oh my gosh that, yeah. oh, he's so he's 33 but that that's yeah. every now and then like especially with some role players is just so so shot I still think of him as like a young a young journeyman wing and like no you are you are an old journeyman wing 33 I now at this point with a with a player like that you're worried about age-related regression so sorry I just I just read that in real time and was shocked so yeah we got AJ we got AJ Griffin but Bogdan Bogdanovich is going to play some three he's kind of all over the place they just sort of throw him out there Jalen Johnson no idea what to expect out of that he was a uh, like he dropped out of he dropped out of college to prepare prepare for the draft he's like a, a player with really interesting skills and athleticism and some big holes in his game we have no idea whether he's going to be in the rotation this year or whether he's going to be a thing or not aj griffin's going to be a stick shooter i have no doubt about that but he's mm. his defense was putrid at, at duke at duke so, yeah I didn't, well I didn't, that's that's also I like that take at culture all. thing <laughs> Yeah. No, but I mean, like, I, I would, he was injured. Like, I mean, or like he's had injury yeah. problems a lot already, but his his mobility, just moving side to side, he looked just so sapped. Now, if there's a possibility um, that was because his injuries were recent and he's got another level physically, that could be a, actually a huge steal for them. But when they drafted like a six shooter who can't play defense at all, I was like, Hawks, that's not that's not what you need to be doing right it's now. It's the opposite of what, what they should be doing. Yeah, you're yeah. right. And especially because <laughs> they, they really need depth at, at those uh, larger wing positions. But yeah, the Hawks are another team. Like again, be the number one offense, be the number like 14 defense, like sure. Finish first or second in the East. Or uh, if your defense is still miserable, have fun getting out of the play in again. Um, but super interesting yeah. team. You know, it's crazy that like the Hawks went to the, the, the Eastern conference finals two seasons ago, the Raptors won the championship in, in 2019. They've both taken these like step 
backs and but like you know still have this like big plans for the future it's like it's interesting to see them come up but yeah let's move on and let's talk about our, our more like let's zoom out a little bit and uh do some do some big big picture eastern conference final standings before we've played even one game yeah well we're about to and so we're, how we're going to structure this is we're going to start from the bottom and make our way to the top and we'll each give our pick for the number 15 seed in the east Mm. And we'll make shocked faces at each other and, and oh. argue and disagree. And then uh, we're going to work our way up just gradually from 15 to one. And we'll see how much we line up. Um, I have not seen Ian's predictions recently. I don't know if he's changed them within the last few days, but uh, last time I glanced at them, I didn't commit anything really all that close to memory. <laughs> and I don't think you've seen mine either. So this will be a surprise for both of us. Who is your 15th ranked Eastern Conference team in the Victor Wembanyama sweepstakes grabbing a front row seat? Yeah, so my number 15 team in the East is the only team that just about everyone seems to agree is going to be bad this year. And that's in the Eastern Conference, at least. There are some bad teams in the West. But that is the Indiana Pacers. Um, I do see them making a trade this year and trying to get to the bottom of the standings and tank away, man. This is the year to do it. Yeah, I mean, I've got I've got the same... Uh, pick there so no big no big shocked surprise faces for me I don't actually love putting them all the way down there I think it is the fact that they're so likely to blow it up that they get that variability where you're comfortable putting them down at 15th like I think I think Tyrese Halliburton is going to be awesome this year I think if Miles Turner stays on the team they're going to be a nice duo and Miles Turner will live his best life you know catching lobs from Tyrese Halliburton as well as spacing the floor for him Benedict Matherin has looked awesome in preseason awesome. like yeah. just some goofy highlights yeah you know they have a couple other like chris duarte is a really useful piece and uh, he's kind of an older like he's not as young as a lot of people think he is he was a rookie last year but he's already like 24 or whatever so but he'll bring shooting they've got some pieces there it just doesn't feel like it's going to be the thing for them to try to like make the play in so everyone's assuming they're going to blow up just because it, it makes too much sense for them to do so so who is your number 14 seed in the east Call, call me a hater, but I got the Wizards all the way down here. I don't feel good about this that, one. That is low. That is low. I mean, they, they're a team that has Brad Beal hopefully coming back from knee surgery. He had down year last year but you know just a lot of okay-ish players on their roster it's not a terrible team I wasn't actually I wasn't trying to put the Wizards at 14 I sort of expected them to be closer to the play-in but when I when I looked at the roster and thought about what the offense was going to be like and what the defense is going to be like I just think they're going to be in the bottom five or six in both those categories and I just think that's a that's a that's a really good formula to be at the bottom of the East. I don't yeah. trust Bradley Beal's health. I think his defense is awful. Yeah. Chris Dapps Porzingis is another guy. I don't trust his health. I do trust his defense, but he's kind of like, are him and Kyle Kuzma going to anchor an average NBA defense? I think they lost the Denver trade. Everyone talked about that as like a good trade for both teams. Like, I think they lost that trade badly. If you've been watching a lot of the Nuggets, yeah. like Will Barton is just, he's he's older now. Like he might, I wouldn't be surprised if he took another step back this season. Just like going top to bottom on that Wizards roster, I have a really hard time picturing them being good on either end of the floor. Yeah, I think you're right on with the Wizards trade in 2022-2023 in NBA season land. The the team that gets a starting level 3 and D wing out of a trade, especially if the other team does not get one, it's, it's a bit of a lopsided trade. Yeah. But at number 14, uh, this is where we, we have our first disagreement already. I am going to go with the Pistons of Detroit. Oh, my, uh, wow. That's 14th okay. team. Why, what, why do you hate the Detroit Pistons? <laughs> 
What have they ever well, done I, to you to deserve this? I, I love Cade Cunningham. Mm-hmm. I really do see him as the future of the team. And I think we're going to grow to love Jalen Duran and possibly Jaden Ivey as well. You're a Jaden Ivey hater. Team... I just want if anyone doesn't if anyone doesn't know this at home, Simon is a uh, is a, an Ivy hater. I'm I'm a little bit low on smallish combo guards who lack a little bit on the defensive and playmaking sides. Just kind of a, as a rule of thumb, it's not necessarily specific to Jaden Ivey. He's certainly very talented, and at the very least, like Jaden Ivey is like six four. I think he's not tiny, so. That in and of itself, the fact that he is like shooting guard size rather than a lot of these combo guards are are smaller than that. I think that that helps somewhat. I just think it's a young team. They got a lot of rookies or second year players that are still adapting to the NBA game and aren't necessarily going to impact winning a lot. So I see them well set up for the future, but not for right now. I'm I'm higher in the Pistons. I won't reveal where I where I have them yet. I'm just I'm kind of I'm on board for this core. I wouldn't be surprised if they were bad for another year. But I'm excited to watch Cade Cunningham figure it out. I like the bolster of athleticism they got in the draft with Duran and Ivy next to Cade. Mm-hmm. You know, just like again, people to people for him to throw the ball in transition and Jalen Duran as a, as a as a rim finisher that they kind of he didn't have a lob threat last year. Like I like I was saying earlier with Trey, it's really important to have a lob threat next to a passer that good who's who's creative like Cade's Cade's trying to be like that skinny skinny Luca archetype so yep. yeah get, give give him someone who can get above the rim and throw down dunks I'm a really big Sadiq Bay fan I'm hoping for him to oh yeah his, for his shooting to stabilize this year because I, I I can see him being sort of in a similar category to oh, things we said about OG Ananobi and hopes we have for DeAndre Hunter I think he looms as a, as a sneaky good starting wing so I'm hoping they fast track yeah. their development and they get closer to the play in this year but it's not I don't think it's it's wild for you to have them all the way down close to 14 but I am surprised you have them lower than the 13th ranked team that I have which is the Orlando Magic so tell me why the Orlando okay. Magic are going to be better than the Detroit Pistons this year there's two main reasons um, one of the reasons is Franz Wagner love Franz and Wagner. the other reason is Paolo Bencaro yep love both and, those players um, my two favorite parts of the Magic team <laughs> I mean the Magic aren't bad defensively they weren't bad last year i think they'll improve and get even better this year uh, jalen suggs despite his shooting struggles was already by some metrics one of the best perimeter defenders in the league last year and i think he's going to get better i think that like the team as a whole is going to improve a lot offensively just having another year with franz he was so great on the german national team this summer um you know playing in Eurocup. yeah, yeah germany really surprised a lot of people and yeah I know Dennis Schroeder got a lot of credit for that, but um, from my vantage point, Franz Wagner was really the engine making that team go. And then I think Paolo is just going to be a machine already from day one out of the box. I think he's going to be a really effective offensive piece. I'm I'm so excited about the future of the Orlando Magic because of those two players. I just love that they've got these two multi-position, like, giant dude. Like, like <laughs> I didn't realize how big Paolo was until I saw him standing next to other people on draft night. And it was just like, I was like, yeah, yeah he's probably like, he's probably like legit 6'9". That I see him was like, you know, besides like Chet and Mark Williams, Paolo was just towering over everyone. I'm like, how big is this guy? And his passing... Yeah, I think he measured six foot ten barefoot, so 6'11 in shoes. Yeah, that's and like... Franz the, is yeah. about as... Almost as tall as he is. 
So yeah. they are huge. Yeah, I was a big fan of Franz in the draft as well. Like more for his defense. I didn't see his offense being this good this soon. So he's definitely a guy who has completely changed his projections and what kind of NBA player he could be. Like, I don't think I anyone was talking about his defense in his rookie year, even though like that's how he came in as a defensive sort of versatile glue guy. And then it was immediately like Orlando's best offensive player this year. So I love those two guys. Why I'm a little bit lower on Orlando than you are. It's just like, they're going to have a non-shooting backcourt almost no matter what happens. Like they're going to need to have, like I think, like yeah. I mean, Gary Harris is uh, Torres meniscus, so yep. they're down that shooter, which means they're going to be playing Terrence Ross a lot more than they want to. I I, I like Jalen Suggs, but offensively, it's pretty. It was it was quite alarming how the level he was at offensively last year was was a bit concerning. So we're talking about a backcourt that has Markel Fultz and Jalen Suggs. and it's just it's like you're gonna like Cole Anthony can shoot it and loves to shoot it, but it's just. You're going to put these guys out and you're going to put them out sometimes with two centers because you love to play like um, you love to play Wendell Carter Jr. at power forward. Mo Bamba actually can can shoot it out of the front court. I, I just think like that's a that's a setup for an offensive mess and, and it's going to be it's going to be yeah. pretty difficult. Um, and a well, lot of I their mean, complimentary pieces are below average shooters as well. And then who knows if like, you know, Jonathan Isaac could come back. That might change things. Well, the Magic have been terrible in offense for as long as we can remember. I mean, it's been since the since the Dwight days, last time they were a good offensive team. It's been a really long time. And yeah. they were 30th last year. Worst yeah. team in the NBA offensively. Dead and... last. 29th the year before that. Yeah. 23rd I, I the think... year before that was like when they were making the playoffs as like a as a, as like a bottom 10 offense with, with elite defense. I just like, I don't think their defense is going to be strong next year. I think they could totally be average on defense, but. I appreciate that you mentioned Gary Harris Torres meniscus because this is a great litmus test to tell that most people don't t- pay much attention to the magic. I can't even think of how many NBA preview podcaster shows I've listen to leading up to the season this year where they they talk about how gary harris is going to help the magic this year he would have it was a good idea like when they when they re-signed yeah. him i'm like that makes sense they do need him to like make lineups work um i don't know maybe bull bull will have a big breakout season there or something who knows like the the magic are super fun i, I definitely look forward to tuning into some magic games with all those with all those giants they have there but None of these teams at the bottom of the East are that good. So if if Orlando comes finishes above Detroit, I'm not going to be super surprised. But yeah, just again, when I look at sort of offense and defense, I can't picture the... I actually have the Mavericks... Sorry, I have the Magic finishing as an as a, as a 15th ranked defense in the NBA. But I think uh, okay. offensively, I have them like, you know, 27th in the bottom five somewhere. And that's not going to be quite good enough in my randomly made projections too crawl out of the basement who do you have have a a tad better in both those categories the team that i think is going to be worse than the magic this year is going to be the charlotte hornets yeah yeah that's i i think that's a solid take though um 538 projections were very high on the hornets they have them finishing 500 i'm like do they know about what's happening in hornets i think the, the the one silver the one upside possibility i think with the hornets besides like their young guys taking a step forward or lamella ball coming out as a huge star is like what if gordon hayward was just healthy all year that could be sort of an underrated thing that makes him closer yeah. to average than really bad like gordon hayward is a very very good player even after his injuries he's such a solid offensive glue guy who's like doesn't hurt you at all on defense is a pretty strong kind of combo forward defensively so i could see that making the hornets closer 
to average if he can just finally have a healthy year after after injuries just completely ruined a, a young all-star well i'm gonna go the other way and i i think this will become apparent in a lot of my takes on where these teams will will finish in the standings i'm i'm baking a little bit of projection into who's going to succumb to the tank race and who's not who's going to continue fighting for a play-in spot and the hornets are one of those teams where it just the the dearth of talent on this roster it just makes so much sense for them to be bad this year yeah and try to pick up i mean they have drafted several big men in the past few years who knows with mark williams he could be great but the last few attempts at it um have not worked out so it, I, there's just I not a lot mark on this williams roster draft I yeah I, I love how mobile he is at his size and yeah. he has really soft hands and I, I think he has a promising future i don't necessarily think he's you know going to be make or break for the hornets this year and it rookie just, centers usually suck too so yeah, this is just a team that needs an infusion of talent, and the yeah the roster talent is bad around Lamelo, and they just it makes too much sense for them to try to unload Hayward or try to keep him out with an injury. Not, like that's going <laughs> mean, to be too difficult. He, he, he might, it might just that. happen anyway. He might do that. He might do that yeah. himself. He might help them out. Yeah, yeah. I think like you know, I, I was I was sort of like looking at teams earlier in terms of of whether like there's like teams in both conferences that are rebuilding and then teams that don't think they're rebuilding but they probably should be and i really didn't know where be, to put yeah. charlotte because charlotte came kind of charlotte was flirting with the play-in tournament and and making the playoffs a lot last season they came out of the gates pretty hot and felt yeah. like they were ahead of schedule um, well they got the 10 seed but yeah they, uh, <laughs> yeah got blat got blasted by atlanta and their their singular play-in game so it just when you, when you look at their roster it's like yeah you got you got you got terry rosier and, and gordon hayward and um and mason Plumley as these you know good nba players you know that they're not none of those guys are a part of your future like it, it does feel a little bit like why don't you rip off the band-aid right now yeah. you you've got some really really young guys on this roster it's not just Lamelo. like they they drafted some guys last year that barely got to play because they were trying to make the playoffs they got kai jones they got jt thor they got uh jalen mcdaniels like those guys weren't really seeing the court because it was like sometimes it really was like the terry rosier show on the Mason Plumley like short roll show and as you know they 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 built a very functional NBA offense that way like they were they're the ninth ranked offense overall and earlier in the year they were way higher than that they were like a top 3 offense for for a lot of the regular season um but it feels like a good time for them to kind of look themselves in the mirror and be like okay we're building around we're we're building around LaMelo and whoever else is coming with him. This is probably a good yep. time to step back, be bad for one more year, two more years, get a couple more draft picks and, and, and then go for it rather than be like, no, let's like try to make the playoffs on the back of Gordon, a healthy Gordon Hayward season, Terry Rozier having like, you know, bombing it from three front of the year. And like, Hey, we got Leangelo ball here to keep LaMelo company. So like, I just, I think I, I hope that they feel like rebuilding. I think you never know with a Michael Jordan owned franchise, like what the, like I, I can see them, yeah. you know, being too repulsed by that and, and going for it irrationally. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty close to the, I, I've got the Hornets as my 12th ranked team. So we're pretty, we're pretty uniform on them. And it's like, just like you can be bad this year, Hornets. Like there's no pressure this year. Like don't, you don't need to impress us. Yeah. And for my number 12 team, I have the the wizards of Washington. So we've filled in most of the same blanks in these lower four, uh, you know, you have the magic in there. I have the pistons in there, but otherwise yeah. like we're, we're pretty, pretty consistent in calling out having the same bad teams, the same yeah. bad spots. So let's, let's fill out the bottom five. Who do you got at 11? Yeah, my number 11 team, 
this is kind of a heartbreaker. I, I really didn't necessarily want to do this, but I, I just cannot trust the health or the defensive cohesion of the Chicago Bulls. Oh, that's tough for Chicago fans. I, I, I'm, I'm not that far. I'm not that far off, but, um, but yeah, Chicago, I hated the team they put together last year. Like mm-hmm. this time last year, I was definitely amongst the loud haters of the roster construction of the Chicago Bull in terms of adding DeMar DeRozan to the Vucevic trade with Zach Levine there and just being like, this team is going to just be the worst defense in the league by far. Even And, and their offense was like, had potential to be a top five offense, but the defense was going to be so bad. And then they just came out and like, <laughs> like danced on the graves of all their haters and were just like, Alex Caruso yeah. and Lonzo Ball were just playing the the most inspired point of attack defense that I have seen. And I'm going to, you know, this is Chicago Bulls joke here. This is the most inspired point of attack defense I've seen since Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen decided they needed to put Tony Kukoc in his place when Team USA played Croatia or Yugoslavia or whatever it was back then. Like when like they like they were they were pulling uh they were pulling a Pippen and Jordan on Kukoc on the on the yeah. league for the first like 20 games of the season. And it was like I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I was just like, like I've been hating on them so much and they're doing so well. It's like Billy Donovan's clearly a, a genius coach and everything's working out. And DeMar DeRozan is having his best season ever. And like, and somehow like they're not hemorrhaging points with a, with a front court that was very often like Nick Vucevic and DeMar DeRozan at like power forward. So it, it, it was shocking, but it does feel like with Lonzo Ball's injury, that's, they're not going to catch that lightning in the bottle again. They're going to face the way their season ended last year was how it, how we, most of us expect how it will begin begin. this year we may not see Lonzo Ball this year and I know I think the initial medical reports are that he's expected to miss like four to six weeks or six to eight weeks or something like that I I just think that's wildly optimistic based off of what we're hearing out of him this offseason like he can't run without feeling discomfort and pain it just feels like this guy is hopefully he gets healthy and is in a spot where he can a be a productive NBA player but be just you know, not have physical issues continue the rest of his life. I think it, it is optimistic to expect that to happen this season. It's it yeah, it sounds it sounds super discouraging. I'm I'm bummed. I, I like I like Lonzo Ball's game a lot. I think he's a very interesting player. Do we get like a, a commission from from their from their dad because we mentioned all three Ball brothers in this podcast? <laughs> like, is that I feel like we deserve it. Leangelo was just dropped be, by the big baller brand yesterday. So let's, Leangelo, let's pa- pause right now and run a big baller brand advertisement because they're sponsoring this podcast apparently yeah if they're still in business i don't even know yeah so who, who do you have at your uh at your number 11 seed last team to just barely miss out on the play in i got the knicks oh interesting okay i like jalen brunson a bunch and i think he was a good signing for them and i think he will help i think this team is still just fundamentally built to have the crunchiest offense in the nba like even like like jalen brunson can shoot but he's at his best when he's allowed to get into the paint and you know uh, unleash hell on unsuspecting defenders with his sort of like short thick tony parker impression there's just four guys in their starting lineup who all want to just truck it at the rim like julius randall wants to four shots in the paint uh mitchell robinson mm-hmm. is a uh, is like purely a lob finisher who's like never allowed to touch the ball in a Tom Thibodeau offense. Uh, RJ Barrett wants to like bury his head and shoulder into defenders and get to the rim. And now you've added Brunson to that. So just like, and the problem is like, maybe with the exception of Brunson, none of those guys are actually like elite and efficient at um, like generating that offense at the rim. They're all like, I feel if you put any of those guys on a real, on a, on a better spaced out team, 
they would be a little bit more effective in that role. But on the Knicks, where it's just going to be so crunchy on offense, I just, I just see them being a, not a bottom five offense, but like not that much better. I think I've, I've got them predicted to be in a, near the top of the bottom 10, around like 23rd or something like that, depending on how other teams do. So yeah, I just think it's going to be, it's going to be a slog every single night. And it's going to be, it's going to be a bit miserable. And I, I want RJ Barrett to be really good. He's, he's a Canadian basketball royalty with his, his dad being yeah. the president of, of, of Canada basketball, but it's just, I don't think it's a, I really like RJ Barrett and Mitchell Robinson. And, and ever since they drafted those guys, I was like, build around these two players and see what you got. But instead they just keep adding veterans to the roster who make it really hard for either of those players to play their best role. So we've seen them both stagnate. They haven't really improved since their rookie season and it's getting kind of discouraging in New York. Obviously they could be solid defensively and not that bad offensively and, and sneak into the play in, but I, I have them falling out just short of that. Well, I think they're obviously going to have to start Quentin Grimes, whether uh, Thibodeau will be willing to admit that day one or whether he'll realize it as the season goes on. They just desperately need the shooting. And Mitchell Robinson, you know, doesn't have the track record of being able to stay on the court for 82 games a year. Yeah. I think he's yeah, going to miss true. some time and Hartenstein is going to get some minutes at the five. And that's a guy who can shoot a little bit and also has like a really nice passing game for a big. So I think rim protection issues aside, I, you know, he's a little bit of a downgrade from Mitchell Robinson, but I think not much though. Really Isaiah Hartenstein great. was a very effective rim protector for the Clippers last yeah. year. Like he's going to uh, invigorate their offense when he's in the game. Yeah. I thought it was a bit of a, it was a bit of an interesting move. And I think it might've been more about asset preservation when they, when they re-signed Mitchell Robinson and brought in Isaiah Hartenstein. Um, Hartenstein. Yeah. It didn't really feel like Tom Thibodeau wanted Robinson. Like he, he's never really given him starters minutes, and he doesn't let him touch the ball. Like it's absurd. Yeah. Like this guy takes, this guy takes four point eight shots per game, despite being a starting center. He actually was pretty healthy last year. He played seventy two games, so like that was a uh, okay. Uh, but I, he hasn't. Again, there's other areas. He finishes seventy six percent of his shots and gets less than five shots per game it just seems like i i think if you put mitchell robinson in a spread pick and roll offense you know he would just be like dunking his way to a a very efficient 15 16 points per game but the knicks again it's just like it's the least happy paint to exist in and often it's just sort of like can you get out of the way so that julius randall can like post up for for 15 seconds before like dishing it out to like rj barrett for a contested corner three at the last second like thanks mitch you did your job i love hartenstein i think like i do i do agree like he could be the like he could just be on the floor because he cleans things up with it with his passing and his and his and his clever play and um yeah he, he doesn't really give up that much defensively compared to robinson even if he's not quite as mobile he's a lot smarter of a player and then you know everyone there loves quentin Bryan, so quentin grimes um people there love obi toppin there's like there's there's upside in the Knicks. I just don't trust. I don't trust Tibbs to do anything besides like play as veterans three billion minutes a game and like you know try to scrounge out every every win and every possession. I'm I'm still traumatized from from the Tibbs era in Minnesota, so I can't. That, that's probably painting why I have the Knicks so low. Well, obviously, I'm a little bit higher on the Knicks than than you are, as I haven't had them appear in my standings yet. But another mm-hmm. team I'm a little bit higher on than you are is the Magic, who I have as the 10 seed in the yeah. West, and I think are going to make a bit of a surprise play in berth. I obviously mm-hmm. am not picking them to advance into the playoffs necessarily, but yeah. I do think they're going to uh, have a little bit of postseason action this year. Nice. I get the Pistons in this spot. So we've, okay. it seems like we both picked a young team to take a step 
a, a like a medium step forward this year. Magic and Pistons. I don't. I mean, I, I like the futures of both these teams. So yeah, I don't have I don't have too much of an argument there. If if the Pistons take a step forward quicker than the Pistons do, I, I won't be crazy surprised. And I, I hope they both do. So yeah. now we get to go. We get to go all the way up to up to nine, where Number I have nine the Bulls, the okay. previously discussed Bulls. So you don't so who, see who, the who's left that you have. You don't see the Lonzo injury as being as a franchise ending as I do, I guess, with the Bulls there. Um, I just think that they were so good for portions of last year. I, I think they're I, I could easily have them lower when I look at where the, I just think their offense is going to be solid all year. I don't I, I think there's better offensive teams than them this year. So I don't have them finishing as a top 10 offense this year, but I think they will be yeah. good on that end if they don't get any more injured than they currently are like Levine is super dangerous DeRozan is DeMar DeRozan I, I don't feel like I want to get into a DeMar DeRozan hating fast uh Vucevic spaces yeah. the floor um love Alex Caruso oh, I, Vuce, in, in in reply to Vucevic I would say he's oh yeah places the floor ish yeah uh, in, yeah, the, in the Bucks series last year the Bucks let him shoot whenever he wanted yeah. <laughs> and uh he didn't take a lot of those opportunities that were gifted to him and many of the ones he did take clanged off the rim. So yeah, it does um, feel like for... a little bit of a waste for him to just be in that kind of floor space role because he's not that good at it. And kind of yeah, not not quite in the Brooke Lopez fake stretch five, but not that much better than that. For whatever reason, they're like DeMar DeRozan is the only guy who's allowed to post up. DeMar DeRozan yeah. gets the whole paint all the time and we will structure every lineup so that DeMar DeRozan basically gets to play the five on offense and that's how we're going to like structure our offense um you know they got, they got some young guys who could take take steps forward like we'll see Patrick Williams I really like the I like I like Darren Dalen Terry you know he gave me some sort of like Penny Hardaway like Penny Hardaway vibes uh Io yeah, he's a fun, fun player I don't think they're. I don't think Chicago is going to have a, a great season. We're arguing right now between the, whether Chicago will feel will finish ninth or twelfth. That's not a great scenario for them either way because they put this team together to like be a pseudo contender and then just quickly realize like, damn, the whole rest of the East is is better than us. But that's all I got to say about the Bulls. Good luck, Bulls. Yeah, I. I mean, I I hope things turn out better for them than we're projecting, but it is it's it difficult could. to see them finishing above you know, the, the top eight teams in the conference. And yeah. I think we're going to have the exact same top eight teams, probably not in the same order because I'm going to close the loop here with number nine. I have the Knicks. Yeah. I, I do. The reason why they're number nine for me and not 10 or 11 out of the play in is just because I think I'm high on the idea that they enjoyed the Julius Randle experience so much two years ago when he first got to New York that they went out and they signed the smaller Julius Randle and Jalen Brunson. <laughs> and I think he's, he's going to be a, just startlingly similar game with kind of his, you know, push to the rim, spin 475 degrees, <laughs> and then have these it, little flip shots. At but least I think he's going to be good for them. I want to say at least Jalen Brunson got his big contract after going off in the playoffs, where yeah. Julius Randle got his big contract after just completely floundering in the playoffs. So I'm going to get, I want to just go on and give Jalen Brunson that tiny edge over julius randall in the sort of optimism yeah. department yeah just just delete the tape of the western conference finals against the warriors last year yeah 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 jalen brunson's an incredible playoff player if we want to <laughs> i mean i'm, I'm, I'm aware of, of his overall <laughs> yeah but at least like he you know at least he got there where julius randall got crushed by the hawks on his home floor yeah. and just didn't just didn't look like there was any reason to believe he could ever shoulder a playoff offense or i feel like jalen brunson's game is a little bit more simply like he's gonna be a complimentary shooter 
and he can he can mm-hmm. he can attack inside and he's at at least a like less harmful defensive position anyways um let's go let's go into this top eight because i i think if anyone out there listeners if you do not if you if you are getting to eight and have and have like different picks than us in terms of like who's in the top eight, I I would have a problem with that. I think it's very clear who the top eight teams are in the Eastern Conference. I'm happy to put them in any order, but if you snuck the Bulls or the Knicks into the top eight, I've got I've got issues. Unless I know there's unless, a few people who have. Unless you just believe that the Brooklyn Nets, who are my eighth ranked team, are going okay. to completely implode even worse than I'm apparently predicting that they're going to implode this is a weird pick for the nets because i feel like it's more likely they're going to be like they're going to be number two or they're going to be in the lottery i feel like eight is is me making some weird compromises because i don't really know what to expect i mean it's around the same range they finished last year so i think what you're predicting here is you're going to you're predicting some weird weird fits which i think is absolutely going to be true any any ben simmons team is just going to have some awkward fits offensively yeah Uh, i think you're predicting some holes in the roster which is true i I think you're predicting some injuries, which we can already see is true, you know, with Seth Curry um, not being ready for opening night, uh, Joe Harris not being ready for opening night either, Kevin Durant struggling to play more than 50 to 60 games per yeah. year the last couple of years. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, if all the things that we think are going to happen happen with the Knicks or sorry, with the Nets, then this is more likely to be an eighth seed than a two seed. Um, I also struggled with ranking them. I also have them as my number eight team, just expecting all of the, all of the many misfortunes that could befall the nets to befall them. Uh, So I think it's going to be a struggle to get through the regular season for them. And ultimately they will be in the play-in. Yeah. My take's not as hot as I thought it was. It's just hard. I was even like, I don't think I was that pessimistic when I was sort of ranking their offense and their defense. I had them as the, eighth overall offense and the 18th overall defense which i think is pretty generous like finishing 18th Mm -hmm. on defense for a team with some big significant defensive problems and like arguably no rotation bigs on the roster uh, or like starting level rotation bigs depending like you know nicholas claxton has some very interesting skills but some big holes in his game is ben simmons in their front court or i guess he's their point guard you got kevin durant just like it's a it's a it's a front court that does not inspire defensive dominance and then eighth on offense doesn't sound like amazing but when you look at when you think of the teams that are in the nba this year when you think about the hawks and the clippers and the nuggets and the pelicans and the suns and the timberwolves and the sixers like that's i just like those teams all might finish ahead of the nets and offense that wouldn't be crazy like you can't you can't come at me and be like, there's no way like Joel Embiid and James Harden and Maxi are not going to, are going to like, you know, be worse than the Nets on offense. Like, I think the way that the Nets get better than that is they're just the number one offense this year. And, and Katie yeah. and Kyrie mixed with Ben Simmons is sort of like transition game, hooking up three point shooters. And there, cause there's a chance of that. Like this could be the most powerful offense in the NBA. Yeah. But I think for that to happen, they need some good health. They need a drama free year. And it's just hard to, it's hard to put them above other teams. Like we're all punishing the nets right now and they deserve it. They can, they can go out mm-hmm. now and prove us all wrong. Yeah, I I think that um, there's some awkward fits. I I'm really the more I've thought about it, the more I've watched them in the preseason. I'm really low on the Ben Simmons Nicholas Claxton pairing. I think yeah, they're two of the top five players on the Nets, and it's just going to be really hard to put them on the court at the same time together because there's a lot of spacing issues, a lot of getting in each other's way issues there. So yeah. That's that's I think neither of us are are crazy high on the the Nets upside working out, even though we both admit that it's there. 
So going into the number seven seed, who do you have, Simon? Well, for my number seven seed, I have the the Hawks. Very difficult team to rank. I have um, the Hawks as well. We're right on two for two so far among the the projected playoff teams, I guess. Yeah, but there's a couple of teams where they just have like they've got a really high ceiling and they've got a, a lower floor. That's you know that's that's how we talked about Atlanta and Toronto and and Cleveland at the beginning of this podcast. So I guess let's um let's see where we where we snuck the, those other guys. Who do you have at number six? I think it's really interesting that you think there's a top clear top two in the East rather than a clear top three. But no, I wouldn't say I, I wouldn't say that. There's more like I think there's teams that have lower basements than the others. But okay. uh, actually, now that I'm looking at my list, uh, yeah, if you're if you're gonna slide up to three, who I think you're gonna slide up to three, I'm going to disagree with you. But we'll address that when we get to it. Number six team, I have the Toronto Raptors as mm. our first locked in playoff team i've got the miami heat the heat you know i just they, they still haven't done anything to address that power forward position they're old and rickety they're tyler hero dependent you're really hoping that jimmy butler has a healthier season kyle lowry has a healthier season that bam out of bio maybe takes a step forward there's things that could make the heat better than they were last year but as it stands right now from a, a projection standpoint i would i would expect a little bit of a fall off even though like we know that from like a coaching perspective they're a team that's like more like to overachieve even if they do have injury problems than underachieve so i don't feel great about dropping the heat like they could have everything go wrong and still somehow finish third and that wouldn't be really crazy either but uh yeah i just have them i have that offense being pretty average this year and i think with pj tucker leaving i have their defense falling off just a touch and that's going to knock them out of the top five I uh, see when you said they have a hole at power forward position, you're not a, a Haywood Highsmith believer. Not yet. I know I've heard the hype. That name is coming up quite a bit for some, like for reasons I'm not quite sure I understand. I'm not in on the on the on the on the Haywood train. Yeah, it's already left the station and I'm like, who got on that train and why did I not know about it? <laughs> I think it has more to do with Miami's pedigree of of finding these undrafted guys that just develop into rotation players and yeah. maybe less to do with his talent. I mean, he's he's a very undersized forward, can shoot a little bit. Um, who knows? Maybe he's the next Duncan Robinson. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I have I, I have the Raptors in that spot just because I do really like their malleability defensively. Um, hopefully Fred Van Vliet has a, a bounce back year from his late season and playoff, you know, kind of injured performance. And yeah, we're both, we're all really excited about seeing Scotty Barnes continued development. You know, yeah, we're all believers in Scotty Barnes think he's going to be awesome, but he is still a second year player. So yeah, he's also prime is still to come. Two things about the Raptors that we haven't said yet. Um, Scotty Barnes is a, is a exciting young player. He's also a, a weird player that we have no idea how to predict his improvement. Like, yeah, people are like, he was so good as a rookie that people are kind of just penciling in while he's going to get better. And therefore he's on like a track to becoming like a a star, even a superstar level player. But like, you know, I, I think I watched at least like 60 Raptors games last year and I have a pretty hard time. I don't know in what ways Scotty's going to improve. He's going to do it in an unpredictable way. Like sometimes I squint and I see a poor man's Magic Johnson, where just this like kind of punishing physical guy who can whip passes around the floor. Obviously, he's not that level of passer, uh, but he's also a little bit more physically gifted than Magic in terms of just like his run and jump skills. Maybe he's going to improve yeah. by becoming more of a big man. Like he's got insane um, verticality around the rim. Like he like he gets up 
like like sometimes he just like gets up on defense to contest a shot and it's like his elbow is is at the rim kind of thing like he's a uh, I've I've heard uh I've heard that in terms of like two footed jumping in the paint the only two athletes in the NBA that have been measured and get up higher than him are Rudy Gobert and Robert Williams so he's got upside as like an wow. interior player he was a he was a beast yeah. in the post um he could or he could improve as a perimeter player and just start hitting those shots like there's a whole bunch of ways that he could improve but we don't know which of those paths he'll walk down or if it will even be as simple as that so obviously everyone's gonna be excited to watch scotty yeah and a lot of times development isn't linear you know guys Mm -hmm. don't always get better on the timetable that we want them to they don't always improve in the ways that we want them to i mean it seems simple like improve the jump shot improve the handle improve the playmaking in that order you know that's analytically what makes the most sense and a lot of times that's not how it works and guys can get better. Ben Simmons being the prime example in ways that we don't want them to, but does add value to a basketball team. So totally. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if, if Scotty Barnes just grew his post game and his jump shot remained the same, like that could happen. Yeah. And it's, it's not going to seem like improvement. Um, at least not in the most obvious way as if he's hitting 38% from three, but yeah, it, it will add value to the team. Absolutely. So are the, are the Raptors your number five seed or do you have a different team in there? Nope. Yeah. They're, they're my number five. That's why, that's why I brought them up slowly climbing up the ladder. Okay. And for number five, I have the Miami heat. I, so we just flip clocked those two. Uh, This is just a, this is just, I mean, Nick nurse is an amazing coach in his own right, but this is just a vote of confidence in Eric Spolstra. Um, I do see like, Every year it seems like the Heat don't have the depth to get there around their two guys, but you know then they find a Max Struess, right? And um, they they find a guy who is just seemingly off the street, but he just fills a role for them and and fills some really important minutes for them. So perhaps Haywood Highsmith is that guy. Perhaps they make a trade. This could be a, a Jay Crowder trade team. They've had him before and really enjoyed his contributions while he was there. So I. <laughs> I, I recognize the hole that they have at the four. I'm not blind to it, but I have confidence that they'll find a way to yeah. get a guy who can provide positive minutes for them there. Caleb Martin's also like pretty good and can step into that role. I just think at that point, like, you know, they're a pretty small team, like Bam's yeah. an undersized center, Jimmy and, and Caleb Martin would be a, a very undersized two, three and, they're going to be playing Tyler Hero and Kyle Lowry. You're, you're giving up size basically at every position. It starts to get a little bit janky. With what you said yeah. about Spo, I, I was and because you mentioned Nurse, I was like, I would love a Raptors Heat matchup in the first round of the playoffs. Like, you know, if they if if they can nab the four or five or something like that, I would just love to see Spolestra versus Nurse awesome. in the playoffs. Yeah. Like, just the two great modern adjusters like both with like <laughs> both with sort of un, like you know low on firepower kind of thing. Um, and the and the Raptors have they played a couple times last year and it's like oh my gosh you have you've got eight defenders you can throw at Jimmy Butler like and you can see it like Jimmy Butler is always like a confident bully but you know he would he would try to draw a switch he would fight for a switch to get OG off of him and it's like well now I just have to go up against Pascal Siakam like what did I do all that for like he looked exhausted anyways uh, it would be a, it would be a cool series Let's get up into the home court advantage, though. Now that we've got all these losers out of the way, they can't even get home court in a deep east. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Uh, on, on both of our lists, the Cleveland Cavaliers haven't shown up yet. No, they haven't. But are they about to? They, they're about to. For me, here at number four, I have the Cleveland Cavaliers as mm-hmm. my first home court advantage team in the East. Yeah, this is this seems like a, a good spot for them. 
Um, I boosted them slightly above the Philadelphia 76ers. Oh, okay. I had them as neck and neck. I've got the Sixers a little bit better offensively, and I have the Cavs a lot better defensively. I could be overrating the Cavs defense. Okay. I'm like, I'm really giving a lot of credit to Jared Allen and Evan Mobley just being an absolute obstacle for teams night after night. And where it's, you know, it's possible that their perimeter defense really struggles with, you know, two really small guards and and not really a, a starting level small forward on the roster. So that's, I think, the swing for the Cavaliers that is the difference between them being the three or four seed and being, you know, closer to the play-in. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't like Philadelphia's defense. I think they're, I think everyone's really hmm. way too excited about their offseason additions like you signed a 37 year old mm-hmm. pj tucker like the wheels could come yeah. off at any moment and that's like yeah. that's their big exciting piece um i love i mean i love uh the anthony melton and i think they're gonna have that's a great, exciting uh, piece yeah yes. <laughs> but that's at a position where they like that's at less of a position of need like pj tucker is going to be starting yeah. for them night after night and the anthony melton is going to be their their third guard um and like, you know, even in, in Memphis, like in Memphis, he felt, he felt totally expensive. Everyone knew he was good, but it, it seemed like he was, they, they, they didn't need him. No one cried when he, when he left Memphis. I think the Anthony Melton's an awesome player. I agree. He's their biggest acquisition, but their front court's going to be great. It's just, I think people are way too excited that like at the four positions, they've added a bunch of former Rockets from the, from that James Harden <laughs> team. They got Daniel House and, um, and PJ Tucker. And I'm just, I'm just not if like if PJ Tucker just kind of loses a step next year or just sort of gets injured, like I, I don't know what are their what are their off season really amount to. James Harden being healthy matters a lot more than any of that. Unless you're really excited about Montrez Harrell, another former member of Daryl Morey's Rockets. Yeah, I mean, there's some offensive analytics you can look at that say uh, that lead you would lead you to believe Georges Niang is actually a pretty valuable player mm-hmm. to have in your in your lineup. So, I mean, they have a little bit of depth there at the at the four spot, but I mean, I agree. It it's a little bit rickety with PJ Tucker. Um we're all waiting for the wheels to fall off. Generally guys in their late 30s uh, don't have the level of durability that he's shown, but I think like despite how his age, he's always had a relatively ground-bound game. And also, like, he spent several years overseas before joining the NBA. I think he He also had his best season in years last year. 26 or 27. Yeah, so he doesn't quite have the same level of miles on his body that many guys at his age would have. Just personally, I'm always ready. Once a guy's over 35 or 34 in the NBA, I Mm -hmm. am emotionally prepared for them to just stop being an impact NBA player at any moment. Like just just because it does happen. I'm not saying PJ Tucker's definitely going to fall off this year. I'm yeah. just I'm emotionally prepared for it. Same with Chris Paul. Same with Kyle Lowry. Like we shouldn't just always expect these guys to keep doing it because like history shows us the drop off sometimes comes out of nowhere. It's like one knee injury and it's like and they're not coming back from that. Or sometimes the drop off is gradual. Like Chris Paul, his production has dropped the last few years. Yeah, you know LeBron, LeBron James, same thing. Like yeah, it, it's not always. Or, or sometimes it's like defensively where the drop-off really happens less than offensively. But, you know, I, the drop-off can be a cliff if it's a major injury. But in this in this modern age of better medical, better like health and training 
technology and, and methods than we've ever had. I, I think the decline tends to be more gradual with these older guys. So that's that's what I'm seeing with PJ Tucker. That's why I'm going to have uh, the Philadelphia 76ers a little bit higher. But yeah, for my for my number four seed, it is the Cavs. The other concern I have with it, with uh, the Sixers is just like Embiid just had his healthiest season ever. Are we going to get that? Yeah. Are we going to get that again? Also, like, is Embiid going to chase the MVP super hard again? Because that's like he just did that and then ran out of gas and got hurt a whole bunch in the playoffs again like i'm more i like i think the i think the sixers should chill i think the sixers mm-hmm. if they're feeling confident about their championship championship chances this year like keep harden and Embiid's role well managed play the anthony melton a lot of minutes you know like uh g- g- give give me give me some paul reed time at at center like uh just just do things to per, like preserve those guys because that's uh, that should be the concern for them now is like I, I would like to see a healthy playoff run from Embiid because it's getting kind of a, it's getting kind of annoying every year it's like it's like a little freak injury that you know this year was like that a broken happens. hand and <laughs> He got sick broken against face. the Raptors in 2019. Yeah. yeah, broken face. Yeah. Yeah, he just can't catch a break. So give Embiid a break. Skip out in the MVP race. Get to the playoffs healthy. I love the sentiment, but I can't see it. And for that reason, I have my number three team as the Milwaukee Bucks. Oh, you still haven't listed the Sixers? No. Okay. Sixers are, are coming up. But yeah, yeah you I know, have the Milwaukee Bucks as three. And I'll, I'll just say, this is a recent development. I had the Bucks higher, and then the mm-hmm. Middleton news comes out that he's still recovering from hand surgery, and he's going to miss the first few weeks of the season. And that just, that scares me. I I don't think the Bucks depth is really that good. I mean, this is a team that, you know, Wes Matthews, like love him, but for his contributions <laughs> to the Blazers back in the day, but my God, this guy should not be playing heavy minutes for an well, NBA team I, at this I, point I, in his you career. Know, I hear Wes Matthews name so much um, when discussing the Bucks. People keep like, uh, I, I, like on Zach Lowe's podcast, he keeps mentioning Wes Matthews as their starting shooting guard. I'm like, he played 49 games last year. He started 14 yeah. games. He played 20 mm-hmm. minutes. Like Grayson Allen was their starting shooting guard last year. Like much more. George Hill started more games than Wes Matthews. Like Wes Matthews is it's basically done there. They might have like, they might have, rel- they, they started all 12 games in the playoffs is like. Uh, yeah, I think the, that was like Middleton went down. Like it was a bit of a different thing. Yeah, I think the the lack of depth was exposed so starkly in the playoff series against the Celtics because a lot yeah. of people were like, you know, uh, if the Bucks have a healthy Chris Middleton, they beat the Celtics and make it to the finals and probably win the yeah. finals. Maybe they would have. I I think it was more than that. If they had any competent yeah. two way yeah. wing. It doesn't even have to be someone Chris Middleton's level. They'd win that series. I mean, I agree. They had Grayson Allen, who was just an unmitigated disaster defensively, just got completely abused every single time he got switched on to Jason Tatum. Or then they had Wes Matthews, who's just a zero offensively, fires up the occasional somewhat contested corner three but does nothing else you know well, also like, Wes matthews doesn't just not do anything else is that Wes matthews will actively pump and drive and take like a contested like you know look at the rim and just like what are you doing like Wes matthews when is the last time you hit one of these shots and he would do it like repeatedly like he would he what would, i can tell you is it was before he tore his achilles in like 2016 yeah. i mean he bounced back from that achilles injury I feel like he was, he like tore his Achilles and then was out for like four months and it was just like, I'm back. <laughs> and it was a, was a different player yeah. from that point. But I mean, he, he deserves, he deserves points for that toughness, but like he's, he's 36 now. Like it's time for us to stop talking about 
Wes Matthews as, as meaningful to anything in terms of a player, a, a team's title yeah. hopes. I think everything I said about the Sixers in terms of the, like the, the, the rickety, you know, parts of their rotation that I don't think can be counted on can 100% be said about the Bucks. Like Brooke Lopez missed all of last year and is so mm-hmm. important to what they do. And he's now 34 will turn 35 at some point during the season. And if if Brooke Lopez all of a sudden stops being a starting level center in the NBA, the Bucks are in a very different, like they're they're a different team. They no longer have this terrifying wall in the paint of Lopez and, and Giannis next to each other. Without Lopez last year, this defense, this vaunted Milwaukee Bucks defense felt a 14. That's the mm-hmm. kind of impact that putting Giannis and Brooke Lopez next to each other has. They're, I think... The, the upside in this roster, um, I can't not root, root for Marson Beauchamp, you know, just knowing even a little, yeah. little bit of his story. Like, I would love if he could pop right away as just like, not a starter, but just like ha- adding another wing to the rotation who's got a little bit of athleticism and, and toughness. If Joe Ingles can come back for the playoffs and just offer a little bit of perimeter playmaking, not even at the level he was doing in Utah before his injury, because I think that's a little bit unrealistic to expect. He was already dropping off a bit and um, was already getting older yeah. before his injury, but... Uh, if he could kind of come back fresh and just sort of like shoot threes and and bring some of that nifty passing, I think that again, not as like a starting piece, but as like better than bringing uh, like better than you know Grayson Allen off the bench or Jordan Wara or things like that. Even though Jordan Wara probably is like another offensive upside piece for them. Until I see him do something, I'm not going to be that excited. I think Pat Connaughton is injured now as well. Like he's out with uh, not not long term, but he has a calf injury, so. They're going to start off the season pretty thin on the wings, which maybe means more opportunity for Marjan Beauchamp. That's true. Yeah. And I just think, or Javon Carter, who I think, um, yeah, Yeah, he's good. You know, is, is a, is a solid player, but we, uh, we got the Joe Ingles experience a little bit in Portland last year. I mean, he didn't play obviously with the ACL injury, but you know, we traded for him and I think, you know, this, this terrible Portland trailblazers roster where we were just unabashedly taking and, had no interest in being good. We traded for Joe Ingles, and I think we won the next three or four straight games um, just uh, inexplicably. (laughs) (laughs) Just with him there smiling. Yeah, his presence alone. And then we proceeded to lose, you know, like 20 games in a row or something like that. But um, yeah, so maybe Joe Ingles' presence can help galvanize the Bucks, (laughs) but... Yeah, the the injury issues, the, the lack of depth. I think there's five players on the roster that I really like, which are... You know, Drew Holiday, Middleton, Portis, uh, Brooke Lopez, and then obviously Giannis. Um, I, I think it just speaks to how great Giannis is. Like, this is a team with <laughs> not a lot of depth, like just a lot of holes on the roster. Um, and yet I have them as a top three team in the East. Sounds like you have them as a top two or one team in the East just because yeah, how amazing how amazing Giannis is basically the best floor to have in terms of a two-way player. Like I, I don't think your defense is going to fall below average with Giannis out there, even like a okay supporting cast. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, in the playoffs, he's just, he's, he's a monster and he's, and he, and he keeps getting a tiny little bit better. His playoff stats are just 35 
point fourteen rebound per game averages over a series, but five to seven assists. It's like even in the even in the series that we thought Giannis had a bad series, like oh that's when like that's when the Raptors figured out Giannis. That's when the Heat figured out Giannis. You go back and look at the stats, and you're like they like figured him out. So he only averaged you know tw- like twenty six and twelve. Well, what what they figured out is whenever Giannis drives to the paint, they could collapse three defenders and no one on the Bucks could hit a three point shot. So. Yeah, they were given the liberty to do that. But now he takes now he's got a little floater and now he's got a little turnaround. Mm-hmm. Like he scores better from like five to seven foot range than he did back when he was getting stopped by the Rap- Raptors in the heat. Pe- teams are still going to try to do that to him, but it's just it's not as effective as it was. It doesn't it doesn't years. work anymore. There there was a switch that flipped. And I think the um the heat series when they lost to the heat and six games in the bubble was kind of the final straw. And Giannis at that stage was still like he would panic a little bit like he would he would get loose goosey with the ball and turn it over when the defense collapsed on him after he got into the paint and he wouldn't you know he wouldn't have that like rapid decision making that he's come to develop and and ever since that point you know i think they they either swept the heat or beat the heat in five games the next season just avenged their loss on route to a title but you know he figured some he figured some things out and i think yeah. uh just that that split second decision making after the defense collapses was was huge because you can no longer play that wall defense against Giannis effectively it just it just not, is not a strategy that you can employ it's great to see it's really fun to watch a, a talent like that slowly figure it out and improve like you know i feel like we got that with lebron to a different extent as we saw like playoff defenses figure out ways to be effective against him and he just slowly added things to his game that just made all those options like less impactful and less effective against him until it's just like yeah there's nothing this guy's gonna this guy is just going to you know put up monstrous numbers against you and uh, your team better just be a whole lot better than his if you have a chance to have a chance of winning so i think we've wrapped up everything except for who our number one team is and you know if if people oh i will i will quickly interject and say 76ers are my number two seed we so so you have you have six the same number one bucks three yeah and i've got i've got sixers four bucks two Cavs three and that leaves only one team very boring of us to choose the finals um participant from last year but the uh boston celtics yeah they're the only team left they've got some they have to be the one seed by default and you know the the celtics have some there's some ways in which they've got some early season struggles to get through without even going into the coaching change they're starting off the year with robert williams injured they survived without him defensively at times last year and often during the playoffs but it's not ideal to start without him. And who knows how healthy he'll be once he comes back. Al Horford's year older. Yeah. They've shored up their backcourt. With the Malcolm Brogdon trade. Yeah. Like that's, yeah. That's, that's, that's like very, I feel like it's, I feel like that's become a little bit underrated considering if Malcolm Brogdon can just stay healthy, he's like kind of an all-star, like a, a near all-star level player. And he'll be coming off the bench for them. And is this big six foot five strong guard who can shoot it and run pick and rolls and defend three positions. Pretty insane thing for a finals team to add but everyone's kind of I think everyone got over it really quick and we're like yeah whatever they got they added another decent guard to their rotation and I, I think people are rightfully concerned about his health problems and stuff they're very yeah. small to start the year that's my big concern with them like they're very puny they don't have any bigs yeah depending on how much they want to rely on Al Horford and they definitely want to try to keep him fresh for the playoffs so I don't I don't foresee him playing like over 30 minutes a game 
He's 36 and he's an undersized center. Yeah, he's already you, you want to play him with another big against a lot of teams because you don't want to be like asking him to like box out and fight against like multiple large bodies sort of every night. That's basically asking for an injury. But um, I don't know who, what what's their front court rotation gonna be like Blake Griffin. I think like I think Noah, Noah is gonna but he's a, but he's kind of a wing, right? He's like he's like he's like a yeah, he'll play some five, but he's he doesn't jump, he doesn't have crazy long arms. He's six foot six. He's strong enough to like guard, like he's not going to get posted up and abused like that, mm-hmm. but he's not going to be like manning your back line and being a huge help defender and stuff like that though. I guess that's not really a problem for the Celtics because they, they get help from everywhere. Like Jason Tatum and Marcus mm-hmm. Smart are excellent help defenders. Derek White is no slouch. Like this team draws a lot of charges. Even Blake Griffin can help with that. I think Blake Griffin, despite being old and rickety is like he had some moments in brooklyn where it's like okay you you're you can you find ways to help you can't be yeah. like consistently dependent on for a lot of things like your shots not consistent your your health is a big problem but like you're gonna go out there and you're gonna be very hard working and smart and dutiful but i i, I would love for blake to like you, you know just have an understated solid year where he's just a useful rotation piece but i think that's a a bit unreasonable to expect that. Well, I think the Celtics will give um, Mifondu Kavangeli a run hey. playing the five. Uh, he was kind <laughs> of like, he, he's interesting. He's Florida State guy, just mega athletic center, like big body, just like a lot of mass. Um, yep. You know, similar to Robert Williams in some respects, not quite the same like otherworldly vertical athletes but the interesting thing with him is a lot of times these like super athletic bigs coming out of college they take a few years to get there and um you know he, he kind of washed out with the clippers things didn't work out he's bounced around the league a little bit what if this is the season where things kind of click for him and he becomes he develops the defensive basketball iq to hang on the court and then just like is a vertical lob thread on offense like I think they're at least going to try it out until Robert Williams comes back. And up to the point when Robert Williams comes back, the rest of the Celtics are so good, even without having an elite rep protector, that they'll still be a top 10 defense. And then when he gets back, they should be the unquestioned best defense in the NBA from that point forward. Yeah, as a general rule, when it comes to Canadian players, I always just expect the worst. So I just can't get excited about somewhere in my brain. I'm I'm rooting super hard for Kevin Gelly, but I won't come on a podcast and be like, yeah, I'll have to leave that to you to predict Kevin Gelly's um uh breakout season because if I do it, it will it will only curse him. Yeah. You gave up on Wiggins too soon. It just took him a while to turn <sighs> it around. I mean, like you can say I gave up on him too soon. Like I stuck around for so long. Like I was one of those guys on Real GM in his last year in Minnesota being like, no, he's he's kind of figuring out small parts of it. Just like give him a couple more years. But I mean, obviously yeah. that was a pretty big disappointment. RJ Barrett it's kind, of, kind of feels like a, a bit of a similar situation where there's like this very highly touted long-term prospect, just really kind of underwhelming, at least in a starring role. But RJ Barrett could probably, even if he doesn't work out in New York, you could easily see him bouncing back similarly as just being like, oh, I'm like six foot six and like have solid man-to-man defense and pretty good skills. And I'm a useful part of a championship team. So yeah, like why can't RJ Barrett have an Andrew Wiggins arc to his career, you know? It's just that we thought I understand RJ he, Barrett was going to be James bit, Harden but... or Manu Ginobili. Yeah. Like that was like both Wiggins and RJ Barrett. They had, they had such similar stories of these like long time touted prospects who had a very memorable performance against their United States counterparts early on. Like Wiggins um, went to the Hoop Summit. 
and just dominated yep. like Jabari Parker and everyone else and looked like clearly the best player on the floor and led the world team to a victory. And then um, Barrett got one of those extremely rare Team Canada victories over Team USA in the medal round, like eliminated the States, which is a huge monster performance. And he was just trucking his way to the rim and finding guys and pulling off these nice little lefty floaters. And he just, he looked very, very Ginobili-like, like very James Harden-like, yep. just like crafty, smart scorer. And then he went to Duke and it was like, kind of the opposite he was sort of like very forceful like ignoring zion to like put his head down and, and truck his way to the rim for uh and he's kind of been a little bit like that in the nba even though he's had some nice moments but uh yeah he has not meaningfully improved either so so i'm not going to say any i'm not going to get excited about kevin Kelly. <laughs> yeah I, i'd like you have probably given up on rj barrett as like a superstar potential sort of guy but i, yeah. I do think he'll he'll be a valuable valuable two-way wing in his future even if he's not quite there yet because the shooting hasn't quite come along yet but you know these things can take time to develop and i think he just needs to play with a team with normal nba spacing and he'll be fine yeah i think that's all i need i think he's just in a very like i think new york is a bit of a muck pile offensively and it's it's very unideal circumstances to develop your offensive game in well i one thing we should finish up on in celtics is the yeah. coaching change and yeah. this is the hope that i have with joe Missoula coming in and being their their new coach the celtics themselves have been a bit of a muck pile offensively in fourth quarters of games uh, even during their winning streak last year, they kind of got to avoid in the later half of the season where they were just trucking everyone and, and winning games by 30 points. They got to avoid it just by virtue of not having close fourth quarter games. But yeah, in the playoffs, when things slowed down, you really saw this against the Bucks. You saw this in game seven against the Heat. You saw this in the latter half of the Golden State series. Late in games, they just their offense just kind of slows to a halt. And it's it's Tatum taking step back threes. It's Jalen Brown dribbling into a crowd of of people and dropping the ball. I don't know. I I I just think Brad Stevens struggled with this issue. Yudoka picked up where he left off, and I think I just think if Joel Missoula can turn it around, add just like a, a spice, a little bit of offensive creativity, maybe putting the ball in Brogdon's hands. I see the Celtics going going right back to the finals if that's the case. I think I mean the Celtics. The Celtics' problem has always offensively has always been it's not hard for them to generate okay offense like they yeah. can they can generate a you know a 40 45 percent chance look out of nothing they've got lots of um tough shot makers on their roster they don't have a way to generate really really good offense easy so, shots yeah they just they don't get easy shots hardly ever a big thing about Jason Tatum, and this holds true to a certain extent for the other J, Jalen Brown, but Jason Tatum does not get to the rim and generate efficient offense there. Like when it comes down to no. it, I guess a good defense, he is a pull-up jump shooter. Mm -hmm. He's like Kawhi Leonard without the tremendous strength. And it's like, that's yeah. still, that's still an amazing player. Like he's, that's still like, you know, Jason Tatum's a consensus top 10 player in the NBA, but you kind of see it time and time again. Like you, you, you look at his percentages and think like, oh, this guy gets the rim and finishes well there and stuff like that. But then you see those percentages just like shrink when it comes to the playoffs. Like this guy gets, gets into the paint for about 20% of his field goal attempts during the regular season in the playoffs that always drops down to about like, you know, drops down under 20% to like, you know, 17%. And uh, he gets he gets less in the floater range and everything like that. And all of a sudden, it's like every playoff series, all of a sudden this guy's shooting 42% from the field and instead of instead of 47. And it's kind of like he still puts up his scoring numbers. It's not elite level offense. Like it's it's just it's just yeah. okay. It's it's pretty good. 
he needs a lot of volume to get there. Um, and you can see how that affects the Celtics overall offense. So I don't really see their way out of that. Like, like you know, unless they are all of a sudden running like Malcolm Brogdon, Robert Williams, pick and rolls and getting dunks and stuff like that. Or if um, Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown can uh, get a little bit more consistent offense at the rim or just put a little bit more pressure in the paint so they can fall back on their tough shot making a little bit less often. It just felt once they got into the playoffs, like this is kind of all we got. We're going to take tough mid-range shots all the time and bad defenses or like, you know, okay defenses won't be able to stop that and good defenses will be able to, to beat us essentially. So I think that will be, I don't think, that's going to change at all. It's really about them being a dominant defense again. And if Brogdon can add a little bit of spice, a little bit of variety to their offense and a little bit more of a pick and roll attack, um, that could be cool. If Robert Williams could come back and be healthy and stay healthy, that would be mm-hmm. huge. Cause um, you know, if they get one more great year at Val Horford, that's probably all they should, they should feel lucky for that. Like again, another yeah. like older guy, like the wheels could come off at any point in time. So like, absolutely value every minute you get at Val Horford because you never know when it will be the last elite minute he plays and he was he was a monster last year in the playoffs I think he was arguably their MVP in the playoffs with what he was doing on defense and yeah certainly uh, certainly in the Bucks series I mean he he arguably had the two best playoff games in his of his entire career in, yeah back to back in game I think it was four and five in the Bucks series and they lose to the Bucks if not for Al Horford so yeah yeah, he he would come in with very timely scoring, even though that's like not really his role on this team. But like their offense would dry up, and Al Horford would just go on this monstrous like threes and dunks run, and um, they lived to fight another day. But also, he just like he was switching everything. He was manning their back line. He was a defensive animal. Yeah. So good for him. I was really happy to see that from him, and hopefully for the Celtics, he can uh, do it for at least one more year. Yeah, so that's gonna do it for our Eastern Conference preview and. We're hoping to give our predictions for the West within uh, the next couple of weeks here. And that will be after the season starts, of course. But so we're gonna it's be still early off. We're going to be cheating. It's still early, we're gonna take it's still that early on and up in this season. I don't think that the first couple of games are going to tell us exactly how things are going to play out. So, yeah, yeah they'll, they'll still be predictions. Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for listening to our Eastern Conference preview. And, um, you know, we at the Unhand Free Throw just want to remind you that ball is life. See you next time.